Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks that a move. I'm Corey Johnson. This is episode number 164. Well, just ahead, an interesting earnings report from Ford and a lot of talk about the future of EV. And higher rates from the Federal Reserve is not slowing down one home builder, or so they claim. And we're going to look at a company leading the way in the emerging science of psychedelic drug development. A Thai life sciences CEO, Florian Brand, joins us with his plans to revolutionize psychiatric biotech medicines. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And when we have, you know, not-so-great guests, Isaac, or when we have fantastic guests like today... For a change, well, we uh, <laughs> we always have good guests. Some are better than others. Today's is fantastic, but because Today people really subscribe to the show, they are able to catch every episode, and that way they don't miss the really, really good shows, like today's. Of which today is one. Yeah, we can only hope. And the drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the Drill Down Podcast. We're gonna explain the business stories behind stocks on a move and Joining me, as always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac? Hey, Corey. Corey, what stocks are drilling down on today? Well, I, you know, I listened to the Ford conference call this week, and it was just fantastically interesting. We won't talk about it for the whole show, but I could. Uh, I was literally, like, texting my son with all the highlights from the show, from the, from the, the conference call, because it was so interesting. Um, uh, but, you know, what an interesting company at a very interesting time. Yeah, we could do an entire series about what Ford's doing. Ford trades under F. F shares are relatively flat over the past 12 months, rising just under 1% in a year. But it's been a tough year for Ford, like many com- like many companies. Since the start of two- 2022, shares have dropped 35% year to date. Yeah, it's like it, it's 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 you know, up but, and then it's down and now it's kind of back yeah. where it started right now. Right. But the, right. that... Um, That's not the story, though. No, the story uh, is that things are... Uh, uh, I'm not going to make an automobile. I was going to say firing on all cylinders, but no. I love that. Yeah. No, yeah, absolutely yeah, not. I'm better than that. Are you? I'm just saying I've been taking a lot of heat for dad jokes around the house. And most of my <laughs> kids aren't even home right now. It's not my kids making fun of me. Um, wow. Uh, summer camp is a beautiful thing. You'll find out someday. Send your kids to YMCA yeah, we're still, camp. We're still in the day camp. YMCA phase, camp so. the way to go. I have one favorite. Back to Ford. You know my favorite Back YMCA camp? Back to Ford. Camp? Camp Corey, yes. It is Camp Corey. 
Yeah. Look it up, folks. Okay, so uh, uh, Ford, uh, strong results, strong guidance. Uh, specifically, the big question we've all been asking about um, vehicles, right, is is when are sales going to come back? When can they make enough cars to meet the market? And what's that going to mean for pricing? Um, now, of course, we have this new problem of, of commodities uh, prices and rising inflation, um, not least of which brought on by the war in Ukraine and supplying parts from Europe. Uh, Ford has dozens of, distri- of, of parts suppliers in Europe that are making things hard for them. Um, they expect um, uh, inflationary costs to be, you know, $3 billion in expand- expanded costs over the next year and another $4 billion um, with uh, commodities. Um, prices rising. Nonetheless, this is the important thing to me, is that full year wholesale volumes they expect will be up 10 to 15% unless something other crazy happens in the supply chain. And because prices are holding, they expect significantly higher profits in North America. Um, Profitable markets writ large outside of North America um, and continued strong results from Ford Credit, but maybe a little bit lower. So, you know, just across the board, really powerful stuff. Now, a lot of conversations about EVs, the sound I'm going to play for you does not reference this important fact, but I thought it was an important fact. When they talked about, they talked a lot on the conference call about the work they are doing to secure the raw materials necessary to make electronic vehicles uh, um, over the course of the next four years and how they have some really ambitious goals, but they recognize that there's a battle out there to get lithium and to get um, the other right. necessary components to make electric vehicles. So they went through all of the companies that have made promises to make electric vehicles in the world, did an estimate on how much they would need in terms of those those rare earths and other materials to make those electronic vehicles. And according to Ford, you, you want to guess what percentage is available in the world to hit all the targets that have been announced? It's less than 100%. I'm going to go with 10%. It's 50%. They think that if you could get all of the parts and all of the lithium and all of the other necessary components to make electric vehicles over the next four or five years, there's only 50% available in the world. So they have secured up to 80% of what they say they're going to need to hit their targets. And we're crowing. Well, crowing is maybe an unkind characterization. But they were talking in great detail about what they've done to ensure that they'll be able to make the products um, that they want to make. Um, not least of which the Lightning F-150 and uh, uh, the electronic Ford Mustang. There's a couple of those in my neighborhood, interestingly. Have you seen those? I haven't. It's ugly as hell. I think it's a really ugly car. I love the Mustangs from different years, certain years better than others. But I think that that's just me. I think the coupe is ugly. I also think the Tesla is ugly. So, you know, Tesla looks like a Ford Taurus, don't you think? So back to Ford. (laughs) So again, the, but the big, the big bogey out there, right? So can, they can get to 10 to 15% more vehicles on the road if there aren't more supply chain problems. But what about supply chain? What about semiconductors? Yeah. Have they fixed these problems? Well, kind of maybe for now. Here's CEO Jim Farley from Ford. On the supply chain, how to characterize it. I mean, you know, chips are still an issue. Transparency is still an issue. Um, in the second quarter specifically, uh, you know, we had quite an issue in China with the Shanghai shutdown and, and that affects, that could have affected our North America um, manufacturing system. 
Uh, the team did a great job. We had a daily call. We worked every issue. We built a digital model of all our supply chain down to supply chain in. Um, and it was really helpful. And we got through it. Um, I, like, you know, like Rosanna, Rosanna, Dana said, if it's not one thing, it's another. Uh, it just feels like, you know, what's next? Um, as far as, you know, we're planning everything we know could happen. The next uh, possibility is the energy crisis in Europe. Uh, we played this out already. We've done our homework. We have about 550 uh, active suppliers in what I would call the high-risk countries like Czech, Germany, Hungary, Austria, and Slovakia. Um, we think that the risk is between now and mid-23 when they can you know, manage through uh, the energy uh, issues. We have about 130 uh, suppliers for our North America vehicle production uh, in that 550 list, and we now have a 30-day uh, buffer stock. So we, we are doing everything we can with the things we know. Um, on the supply chain outside us, you know, we have labor shortages and, you know, all sorts of <laughs> things. The, the, the suppliers have been working nonstop during COVID, so machine maintenance and a lot of other things. Uh, you know, we see the output of, of the stress in the supply chain and obviously their costs have gone up too. Um, and, and we're working through all of that with our suppliers. So I think we're well prepared for the things we can predict, but it's always a new day. So yes, Jim Farley showing his age, quote, quoting Rosanna, Rosanna Dana from Saturday Night yeah. Live in the seventies. <laughs> Come on, Jim. Come on, Jim. You're better than that. Um, but, uh, I wonder how many reporters actually got that. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure how many investors got that, you know, there yeah, are these right. great statistics about how few investors had ever seen a downturn. Oh, really? Like professional investors who joined huh. whose careers have, whose careers are more than a decade old. And this is their first ever downturn, right? Wow. They joined, they got, they got out of college in 2009, 2010, 2011. They've right. never, ever seen right. a sell off. And this is, and, and Hey kids. This isn't a big sell-off yet. Yeah, this is nothing like there's it no was blood in the streets. There's no panic. There's there's, there's no, nothing like 2001. That are, you know 2000. No. I should say this is nothing like like you know the the big sell-offs in the 80s when the, when the, when the paper was stacked up to the knees of the traders in the New York Stock Exchange. No, we're not there yet. But we mean, hopefully we won't get there. But anyway, Ford um, is is uh, predicting what they can predict, but it's always a new day. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Century Communities. It's a home developer that we rarely talk about. Yeah, I've never heard of Century, uh, but Century Communities trades under CCS. Shares have dropped 18% in a year, currently trading at around 51 bucks a share, a ways below its 52-week high of $86 a share. So this is- Tell a, me about Century Communities. Yeah, so it's a, it's a $3 billion um, enterprise value company based in, in uh, Colorado, um, and they develop new homes. And they're kind of on the lower Single end of the market. Single family homes? Yeah, and they're on the lower end of the market. Um, and they, they do some attached they do some attached homes, as they call them, as well. Um, uh, they buy land. They, you know, slap up the houses and, and sell them. Sometimes they sell the land. They even take deposits on the land. Other times they, uh, they you know, sell a lot of uh, uh, spec homes even that are fully developed and even furnished. Um, uh, for sale. And so um, they, uh, they're in an interesting part of the market, but I thought it'd be really 
you know, I always think it's useful to look at what a company is doing as opposed to broad predictions about the economy. And rates are up, so home sales slow. You know, well, maybe. I mean, what we heard last week, I had an online debate with my friend Barry Ridholtz this week about, you know, he was talking about um, rising rates affecting car sales. And last week on our, on our show, we quoted um, a CEO uh, from uh, Ally Financial saying, the, the a full percentage point increase is about 20 to 40 bucks a month, which is a couple loaves of bread these days. That doesn't affect, it has not historically affected our sales and it's not affecting them now. And that goes, that flies absolutely in the face of, of what broader um, economic theory might say, right? Which is it absolutely will affect them. And yet you have the companies that are selling the products saying it's not affecting them. So what does a home seller, particularly of low end new homes, a low end, I'm sure nobody, they're not going to use that phrase, but more affordable, $500,000 homes. Um, what are those? You know, what, what, what are those and below? What, what's the effect there? Well, CEO uh, Dale Francescon, uh, or CFO, I should say, of, of uh, Centric Communities, says that, you know, the rates have gone up really fast and it's definitely had an impact on their sales, but they're mitigating those with some deals that they're offering um, for their customers. And they think that their customers should still be able to afford the products that they're selling Here's the chief financial officer from Century Communities. Our view on this is that it's um, interest rates went up very quickly. People still have to um, be able to wrap their minds around that um, buying a home at, at that payment makes sense for them. Um, from our standpoint, we're, we're really not seeing that it's a, it's a huge affordability challenge. Uh, where we do have some some issues, we provided rate buy downs um, and other incentives on the on the mortgage side, and frankly, we think that we're well positioned, being at the uh, typically at the lower end of the market, that if someone is priced out of a of what was a, a more expensive home, well then when they start looking at ours, it becomes much more affordable. So we think there's some elasticity there. Um, and that's that's why we really like how we're positioned with regard to our price points. So the more expensive home, you know, the second home for somebody, maybe that's more affected. But these first-time home buyers of, of more affordable price points, um, he thinks these sales won't be very much affected by the rise in interest rates. Yeah, it seems like he almost welcomes them. Well, like you know. he sees like, uh, you know, people like turning away from more expensive homes and considering his homes for the first time. Let's let us also always consider these guys can be full of it. And and believe me, listeners, when we know they're full of it or can point out that they're full of it, we'll, we'll point that out to you. But let's put a let's put a flag in the ground here with Century saying that they can get through this um, without a significant disruption. And then we'll judge the uh, veracity or the ability of to um, read tea leaves of the CFO uh, maybe in 13 weeks when the quarters, the next quarter is bought in the books. Corey, what's your next drill down? Well, I thought we'd look at the retail sector and specifically look at Columbia Sportswear, which uh, really took it on the chin here. Because um, uh, who wants a down jacket in this weather as America's melting? Yeah, you know, I mean, maybe if you lived up in um, Yukon territory, I don't yeah, or San Francisco. Where it's always cold. <laughs> so Columbia Sportswear uh, trades under COLM, and COLM shares have fallen 26% in a year, currently trading around 73 bucks a share, well below their 52-week high of 107. 
Yeah, what's so, going on with Columbia? Uh, not good things. Um, it's it's a it's a really interesting story on how um, hard it is to predict what what companies are going to do. How they don't really know what their what their um, customers are doing, and these guys kind of struggling um, in figuring it out. And their internal projections of what was going to happen with their customers was way off while they were really wrestling with these supply chain problems. So, um, you know, they have seen an increase in sales, a substantial increase in sales, well over 20% um, in each of the last few quarters. Uh, but nonetheless, um, uh, really kind of blowing their predictions. Now, they were fighting with um, lockdowns in China going on longer than they expected while they're trying to get more product onto U.S. shelves because they can recognize that U.S. consumers and direct-to-consumer business from their website, the D2C business, um, not hitting the numbers that they thought, uh, big stores canceling orders because they've suddenly got too much inventory when they were begging for more inventory like only months ago. Um, and then traffic just kind of slowing up in the stores into which they sell. All of it adds up to just a, uh, a big mess for Columbia, um, a, a really weak prediction for the quarter that we are currently in. And Jim Swanson, the CFO of Columbia, struggling to figure out what the heck is happening in the real world versus their internal outlook. As it relates to our second quarter versus our internal outlook, we were off kind of a high, a mid to high team number. And half of that was associated with uh, China and the lockdowns lasting longer in duration than we had initially anticipated. The balance, the half, call it in the eight to $10 million range, that was U.S. related, and and part of that was wholesale based with regard to uh, cancellations that we saw. And I think you know those cancellations are by and large what Tim had reflected in terms of you know being late in delivering supply to the marketplace um, in the early part of the quarter, and then some softening that we saw in the latter part. And then D to C made up a component of that as well. And we touched on in the months of April and May, our D to C business performed quite well. As we got into the month of June, we saw some declines in in traffic levels where that softened, and that's that's essentially where you're seeing the the performance relative to the the guidance we previously provided. So yeah, that was a lot of MBA mumble jumble speak performance relative to the guidance that we'd previously pre- yeah we blew it. We made predictions internally and externally, and they were all wrong. Um, and so Columbia trying to figure that out as we get into the end of the year and the big money making season for them. You know, I have to, when I think about Columbia Sportswear, I just wonder what is their brand, right? Like what, what is their brand? They, they should be competing with Patagonia. They should be competing with REI. Well, um, so they're selling into REI. But they, they don't, they don't like, but they, they don't have the brand identity and the emotional response you get from those other competitors. I, well, so I, what I'd say is that they're, they're in a different part of the market than Patagucci. What is their what is their Patagucci really? That's what they call it. Because that's what all who the, calls it that. The knuckleheads who climb rocks. <gasps> Patagucci, huh? Okay. Well, you know what that stuff I mean, costs compared should, to. You know what the Patagucci stuff costs compared to the Columbia stuff? Actually, I have no idea. And it's almost as good, Columbia. and it, it's like twice as much sometimes. Well, then they should be marketing themselves that way. I think that I they don't are. See any, I don't see any effective marketing from Columbia at all. That may just be about you, Isaac. Maybe, but, but you know, I'm a potential client, um, so they uh, should be targeting me. 
so they did about 3.3 billion in revenues uh, in the last uh, 12 months. But uh, as they approach their fourth quarter, it sounded to me like they're really straight. You know, the fourth quarter for them is about, you know, 30% of the year's business. So uh, is that a very, let me look at, look at the last year. Yeah, it's a little less than that, but still. No, it's about right. About, but the sorry. point is, Corey, it's not about like a price point or it being more like a luxurious as you're suggesting the Patagonia may be, but like Patagonia has a story, right? You're buying into a story. There's a narrative that they've created in the yeah, marketplace. And they sell a lot and less Columbia stuff. doesn't have, Columbia doesn't have a, a story with it. It doesn't have like a narrative. It doesn't have a feeling or emotional attachment to it. And I, I think that consumers want that um, more and more. The company made, and I don't know what Columbia offers. The company's made $365 million in the last year, which I would argue is probably a lot more than, even Patagucci. In any case, um, what we're seeing is that they're having a hard time predicting what their customer is going to do. Uh, whether the Because customers... they don't have a narrative. Okay. Maybe that's why. <laughs> Here's a There's narrative. No stickiness. Oh, yeah, give, this is a great narrative. Yeah. This is, this is super interesting. There's been so much yep. written, uh, Michael Pollan's most recent book, not least of which, um, about how psychoactive um, um, experiences can help uh, with with mental illness and other issues. Um, there's a company that's working hard to develop some drugs along these lines, anti-life sciences. And uh, the CEO, Florian Brand, joins us with an interesting conversation about developing drugs, working with the FDA to get some products on market to help with an entirely new uh, approach towards um, drug development uh, and using psychoactive uh, compounds to cure and treat uh, mental illness. Fascinating stuff. Coming up next, the Anti-Life Sciences CEO after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. Joining us right now, as promised, is the CEO of Atai Life Sciences, CEO Florian Brand. Joining us, for, are you in Germany right now? I'm in Germany, yeah. I uh, just arrived back from the US uh, two days ago. I'm in Berlin, where our and it, yeah. It is Atai Life Sciences, which is funny because you're sitting in front of a dead plant. Right, we talked about that. Which our, well, which our listeners will have to take my word for it. You could deny it right now, my listeners would never know. <laughs> we, agreed, we agreed it to be semi-death and that there's hope that we can revive it, uh, <laughs> I thought, before starting the podcast. But yes, um, the plan suffered from my trip to the US. So. Um, uh, you, can you revive it with psychedelics? Probably not. But psychedelics is the focus here, um, and it is such a fascinating one. Um, tell me about you know what problems you're, you know, usually I'm talking about a, a security software CEO and saying, what kind of problems are you trying to solve? But what right. kind of problems are you trying to solve at Atai Life Sciences? Yeah. So the mission at Atai is really personal. So um, in a nutshell, we're trying to solve um, the big problem of the global mental health crisis, where um, nowadays more than a billion people are affected by mental health disorders. And we basically witnessed that very, very firsthand through seeing uh, friends and family members suffer uh, and not finding any any help or healing in the available treatment options. And that became very evident through um, the mental health patient journey of Lars, who is a co-founder also of Atai and who I started a business 
with before a tie and also my wife. So it's, it's very personal to develop more effective um, mental health solutions to yeah, just uh, provide better, more targeted ways of treating these conditions. Yeah, it, it, it is. I think it's one of those things like cancer where people start to talk about it enough and it gets diagnosed enough these days. It does affect every family um, and people know more and more about mm-hmm. it than they used to. Um, but talk to me specifically about the ways that, or the, talk to me about the failures of the current uh, treatment regimens, the Prozacs sure. of the world. Sure. Yeah, if you, if you look at depression alone, um, and again, that became also very evident um, with, with kind of Lars' journey, there's a lot of trial and error. So the the mental, health, mental health conditions are extremely heterogeneous. If you look at depression or anxiety, it's really depressions and anxieties. So very, very heterogeneous patient population with their very unique needs to be treated. And we're currently trying to treat it all the same. Um, there's a spray and pray uh, approach, the trial and error approach, um, of giving a, a compound like SSRIs, try whether it's works. So they are not really rapid acting. It takes a long time for them to, right. to show whether they work, can take up to three months. And um, and then we just try the next one. So it's a very distressing experience for the patient if you're not responding and only 50%. Or if you are responding and you respond in a way that, that sends you right. off the rails in a different way. Right. And then you experience that you have all the side effects like, um, I mean, benzos, when you look at, or benzodiazepines, if you look at, anxiety, then they come also with a lot of um, uh, baggage on the side effect side, cognitive, side effects such as? Gain, cognitive impairment, weight gain, addictive. I mean, they're, they're also, there's a potential for addiction with those compounds. Um, so that's also why they're usually only prescribed for a certain period of time. Um, so we don't, so yeah, we have, and I think what comes on top, we haven't really seen a lot of innovation in this field. So. Um, insufficient available treatment options with a lot of side effects as, and over the last decades, very, very little, only incremental improvements for mental health patients. And then you mentioned psychedelics in the beginning and then, um, there was a a lot of hope for us when we saw, uh, academics producing very, very promising or generating very, very promising data in studies studying psilocybin or also other compounds that then encouraged us uh, to explore the compound, this compound group, tryptamines, um, and then also beyond to um, yeah, develop these as, as uh, mental health treatments. I think it's gotten a lot of attention here in the States, particularly with Michael Poland's book of, right. my goodness, is it even two years ago? He really, and he's, he's written about this in the past, but really talked about sort of psychedelics and psychedelics as, as um, uh, as a permanent mind altering, I don't know if he's sort of treating a condition, but really looking at um, some of the issues, some of the ways that psychedelics are being used, you know, off label, if you will, or il- even illegally um, right. to help people with issues like um, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, and depression. Yeah, no, I think he has been um, very, or his work was very instrumental to raise the awareness for the therapeutic potential in the I would say in the mainstream, in the mainstream or in the, in the pub, for the public audience. Um, so there's this, uh, I mean, there was already a lot of research in the fifties, um, as you might know, if you, if you came across his work, um, that really in a very serious, rigorous way, uh, researched the uh, potential in academic studies, um, and, and alluded to the potential in mental health disorders. And then there's kind of this century old long shamanistic uh, use of those uh, those compounds in very various um, um, cultures 
um, going yeah. back maybe even millennials. Uh, so a long time. So there's this, a lot of anecdotal evidence that these substances uh, can be used for therapeutic use. Um, then there was kind of the more Western approach of from an academic university, uh, from an academic um, perspective, studying those um, in the mental health disorders. And then there was this political backlash um, in the kind of as the anti-war movement uh, kind of picked up um, the Nixon administration uh, made it really, really hard to continue to research those substances through the scheduling process. Um, and that slowed down the research tre tremendously. The scheduling process where they reclassified these, right, these drugs as, as, as illicit. One, not having illicit, not having any medical uh, benefit um, and uh, being kind of more on the harmful side versus uh, on the on the on the potential benefit side, and that was really so, um, mainly driven from pol for poli political reasons, not based on on science. And kind of that's what we now see more in the more recent academic studies from John Hopkins in the U.S. or the Imperial College in in London that really generated really promising um, data in mental health patients, treatment resistant depression patients, uh, patients, and that also more recently Compass in their phase two B study demonstrated that also um, uh, what we already seen in academic studies before. So how do you take, how do you construct a company around the concept of taking these academic papers into a drug that you'll sell or something that you can sell to make money? Like how do you yeah. build a business around this and what's the, what's the plot, what's the plan? So for us starting again, we, we, we observed initially the large unmet need and the very insufficient um, from our perspective, insufficient innovation, uh, so information, inf insufficient treatment options and in insufficient innovation that was happening in the space. And uh, we looked into this and there are multiple reasons why neuropsychiatry didn't make that much progress. Um, it's, it's drug development in general, it's hard. Uh, neuropsychiatry is especially um, a very, very um, challenging indication. Um, very little drugs have been approved, so the likelihood of getting those to approval in this therapeutic area is particularly um, challenging. So we designed a model with a tie that basically caters for these specific risks and was designed to increase the likelihood of success by following a, a basically a portfolio approach. And then we have a quite unique platform model that um, gives those companies that we form around the compounds access to our own team. So we're not only providing capital, but also human resources and expert deep CNS domain expertise into those companies. Um, but what was CNS? What's CNS? Uh, central nervous system. So neuro, neuro Thank you. focus on neuropsychiatry, which again has its kind of very own tricky, uh, <laughs> tricky um, challenges. Uh, so you need it's it's helpful to have a very specialized team that is working on this, and that's why we set it up that way. And then to your point, uh, as you mentioned, academic studies. The the third de-risking um, factor next to the portfolio approach and really having kind of a hands-on team involved and leveraging economy, economies of scope is um, focusing on compounds that have prior evidence in humans as evidenced um, in academic studies um, or also anecdotally. So the, all the psychedelics have a lot of um, prior evidence in humans, either, again, as we discussed, through shamanistic, ritualistic use that points to the therapeutic potential. And then have been also heavily started in academic studies. So there's a lot of data. So we don't start at zero. There's a de-risking element in relying on um, um, yeah, existing data on the safety and um, at least anecdotally on the efficacy side 
then in our opinion um, increases the likelihood of success in neuropsych. Can I can I be very unclinical about it? Can Please. I say that what what we've got is an experience of experimentation with people, so you know when someone's having a bad trip, what's going on? Like if you were testing. I don't know, aspirin or Drano on humans for the first time, you might not know what to expect, but you can guess. But if you were treating, you know, if you're giving someone LSD, you probably know from anecdotal experience, um, uh, knowledge, what an overdose looks like or so on that, that you might not have, even if you're testing, trying a cancer drug or something. I think you can test. I mean, I think what, what we benefit from is that, um, you have, to your point, cancer, I think oncology is a different, I, I don't know if, if you have a lot of prior evidence, humans in oncology, that's very rare, I would say. Uh, oncology so treatment, right. Oncology treatments, um, because you wouldn't necessarily take those substances and, uh, well, test them in uh, even recreational or shamanistic uses. I think um, you mentioned a bad trip. That is not necessarily a predictor has yet to be studied of bad outcome of the treatment or good outcome. So what a lot of times happens where people from the outside have a challenging experience is that's actually when kind of the, the work happens, it's working, uh, working yes. on traumatic experiences that often um, or, or that can be considered a certain root cause of certain mental health conditions where some sort of traumatic experiences is, um, yeah, is, is buried in the subconscious and this experiences helps. And that's also why it's so important to work that, that this is done under supervision of a therapist supervision, yeah, and working with a therapist through that experiences that is basically resurfaced of, um, um, with that. Yeah. Through that I guess what I'm trying to get to is, is you talk a little bit in your, in your SEC filings about the ability to get to go, no go decisions in your clinical right. trials. And I, I don't know if I've ever seen that phrase in a life sciences company. Um, mm -hmm. and it's, it's interesting. It suggests a different clinical, um, approach. Yeah. Maybe it's because, some, some other companies, when I see they'll, they'll have a drug fail, they'll say, well, we didn't reach our primary endpoints, but we got right. these really great results. Yeah. And you're like, no, those are not great results. They're not the results you wanted. And so I, it, it's interesting to me that you're just saying, look, we're going to get to go or no go. Right. Yeah. So and that, that's also part of the design. So that's part of the portfolio design and the very kind of milestone driven approach that we apply. So that's kind of one of the de-risking elements that I alluded to earlier, where we say we have to hit that specific milestone and this that is basically part of the clinical development plan or based on the clinical development plan that we design together with a scientific founder that we work with and if this one is hit then we continue the, fun the funding of the program um, because we saw this value inflection point from a from a capital allocation perspective or a de-risking point from a technical drug developer perspective that increases our reason to believe or conviction level to then further deploy capital to drive that program forward. And I think that's a, actually a, um, a key strength of our model because it leads us to be really truth seeking versus success seeking. You mentioned like your uh, regular one or asset biotech company that is reliant on the success of this specific molecule. As we have multiple compounds of like a, in a very kind of diversified and in our perspective also uncorrelated way um, in our pipeline that allows us if we don't um, if we test the hypothesis and don't see the results that we want to see, then we can um, also um, decide to not go or kill a program and reallocate that capital to programs where we expect a higher IRR or return on investment. And you've got what, 13 drugs in development? I'm going to call them drugs for the sake of this discussion. Um, if, is that all right or is there a better phrase? 
I think they're not yet drugs because they're improved, so that's probably a technicality, but we have molecules or compounds okay. uh, in development. Okay, so there are molecules and compounds yeah. that um, will someday be a drug. Um, uh, in particular, you've got, of the 13, you've got two that are far along, uh, which is to say in phase true trials uh, for depression and for schizophrenia. Yes, correct. Um, how big are those trials? Um, so it's uh, the phase two trial for um, R-ketamine. It's 93 patients. Um, R-ketamine is a depression drug. It's yeah. a for treatment resistant depression. So uh, racemic ketamine, and again, that goes back to this, um, I guess, red ribbon or common denominator of all our programs, has a lot of, again, prior evidence in humans that show, so ketamine itself, the racemic version, which basically consists of S-ketamine and R-ketamine, so it's kind of a, those mirror molecules that together form ketamine has been um, approved as an anesthetic, but has been off-label um, uh, used for to treat depression and has also shown in academic studies. Um, and there is a lot of published data on that to be efficacious in depression. And Spravato, um, J&J with Spravato developed S-ketamine and got, got it successfully approved in 2019 um, by the FDA. And we are developing on the R enantiomer, so they basically the other um, side of the right. molecule, if you want. And how? And, and when do you expect results from that? By end of this year. Okay. And 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 then the, your other your schizophrenia drug RL 7 At least you got 7 in there. That's memorable. Right. <laughs> um, so here the, you the, want the, a license to distribute, not a license to kill. But you know. Yes. Um, still so memorable. Here, still memorable and a very interesting compound because it showed. Um, and again, here, the prior evidence in humans also led us to um, include this uh, compound in our pipeline. There, there, have been, um, there have been a lot of uh, studies already with that compound. Um, so that was actually studied in a different indication. Um, but was, what was demonstrated is that they're very consistently, that they were always pro-cognitive or in the studies that uh, were looking for cognition um, endpoints, there was a consistent pro-cognitive effect um, observed. And um, we are developing it for um, um, to treat cognitive impairment in schizophrenia uh, patients um, and basically could demonstrate in a small study, in a biomarker study, that um, this pro-cognitive, those pro-cognitive effects in the prior studies were also in a clinical meaningful way observed in our phase 2A biomarker studies in patients. And what we wanted to demonstrate that basically it, this pro-cognitive effect is also um, uh, observable in that specific patient population of schizophrenia patients. And now we are and rolling results out. results that expected when? We haven't guided on that. Uh, so we had the results of the phase 2A biomarker uh, study um, end of last year and are currently um, designing the study and are anticipating to kick it off um, still this year. And that would be then the full a larger study that um, looks also at regulatory endpoints. And the typical one here is the matrix battery. Uh, interesting. So, and, and yeah, that's interesting. So there really is a kind of like a way to, because you know, when it, when it comes to mental health, how do you say when an endpoint has been reached, right? Um, like if you have a cut on your arm, if you, if, if you have a, if sliced your leg open, when it stops bleeding, you've reached an endpoint. Yeah. Whether you bleed out or you get a fix, I suppose. Right. And and I think so it's an interesting point because we are, I would say we have more objective biomarkers uh, in oncology, let's say, because that basically right. observed clearly, uh, for instance, in the blood. 
for uh, neuropsychiatry, you have scales, but that are validated. That so it, it's it's comp- there's a viable path forward to get a, right. approved from the FDA based on 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 scales. But these are often subjective measures. So what we um, are very interested in, in a tie is actually also moving more to a biomarker driven approach to also allow more precise precision medicine um, approaches in psychiatry as you know, that's what, what we talked um, about earlier we are still um, trying to treat the disease uh, in a very um, monolithic way not uh, assuming a very homo- homogeneous patient population but in fact it's very sure. homogeneous um, but that's and, early days. So we're relying on subjective um, scales that are validated. And um, luckily also, yeah, there's there's a lot of data. So let's take these these two molecules you're working on of, of the 13 that you're pushing forward. Um, and uh, how big will the clinical trials have to be about? Like about how many people? Um, you have any idea? Yeah, it depends. If you get to phase three. It always depends on the indication. Um, it's usually um, more in the hundreds once you're hitting later stage uh, trials. And do you have enough money for that? Like, how are you going to raise money around that? And what are the plans there? So we have... So it seems like that's when it gets really tough. That way, it seems like it's really tough early on. Well, it seems right. like it's tough the whole way. Right. But those phase three trials is, is when you have the most promise and need the most money. Correct. And that was also one of the reasons why, this, why we decided to go public, because we... We anticipated to need uh, the funding or the access to um, funds, and we believe the public markets are the place to be to raise the funds that you need to run later stage trials. So far, we are uh, very well financed. So um, I think unlike many of our counterparts uh, or, or other companies in neuropsychiatry or biotech more broadly that trade below, below cash or at cash or even at um, dissolution value, we have 30, 30, uh, 335 million as per our last earnings call on the balance sheet right. that allows us to be, and we're grateful for that position because it allows us to execute the trials that we have now. And then uh, on that way to the uh, potential next race, um, generate a lot of data that supports basically an additional race in the future. But so far, in other words, you'll have to raise some more money. You will have to raise some money. Eventually we have to raise some success. When, right. When we, when we, ha- when we are entering later stage trials, we anticipate at some point, raise uh, more money, but we have guided also publicly that we are very well funded and have runway into 2024. So we don't anticipate uh, any any raise uh, at this time, which is, again, a good position to be in because valuations are and somewhat low. unique, somewhat unique. And it also allows us to be very active on the business development side. So we um, built the company through a buy and build approach. So we incubated companies, but also acquired companies. Uh, in the past, and we anticipate, especially in this market environment, to uh, remain uh, very active on the business development front, uh, as there's very interesting innovation out there that doesn't get necessarily the credit from the market right now in this downturn. And so we believe this is a, a very good time to be in and to and to be on the lookout for additional business development opportunities. Uh, it's such an interesting, uh, let me ask you one last thing about being in Germany. Why is the company based in Germany? What, what is, uh, is there anything as it relates to the legality of these drugs and so on that makes it easier to study or are most of the studies happening in the U.S.? There's a, interestingly, there's quite some history. So at the University of Göttingen, um, there was a lot of uh, psychedelic research actually in the 50s, 60s when it was less stigmatized before kind of the political backlash. Um, but there's no specific reasons. I mean, we started in Germany because we are, as the founders, are German. <laughs> uh, well, the majority part, uh, three out of the four founders uh, are German. Um, and I think 
we we just happened to be in Germany. The problem that we are facing is a, actually a global one, and our team in the meanwhile is also a global one. So it's really a global mental health crisis, and globally we see insufficient treatment options for mental health patients. Um, so uh, I would say the common driver is also that people, again, like you said earl- earlier, are really if you, if you ask a person, do you know someone or have you suffer, suffer, suffered yourself from mental health disorders? Usually the answer is, answer is yes. Um, and that holds true for every, every geography um, that you're in. I guess uh, I should ask one more question. How do you decide how to price something like this? Where mm-hmm. you, you know, your studies cost whatever they cost and your overhead costs whatever it costs and your, your molecules probably don't cost a whole lot to create. How do you try to decide? Because you, you cite in your financial filing some market estimates and the val- what, how valuable these drugs could be. Right. But how do, you, how do you even start to figure that out? Yeah. I mean, usually what excites us is, again, like a mix of um, prior evidence in humans, large unmet need, large unmet patient need that is tr- um, tremendously large, unfortunately, in uh, mental health. And that, in turn, also represents a large market opportunity commercial opportunity that um, in our case, often we assume to be um, a billion in terms of peak sale potential um, for many of our compounds. And um, that is usually anticipated or calculated based on commercial forecasts that where you look at benchmarks. Um, but to your point, how do you price such a drug? It's usually through negotiation with the payers. Um, and ultimately you um, run economic or well, health economic outcome models that alludes to potential savings for for uh, for the payers or the insurer um, yeah interesting and so and especially so we started out in very very large amid needs that are often also often also very costly for for the payers so treatment resistant depression it's an indication where um where where you failed multiple treatments and are often hospitalized because you have a high degree of suicidality or suicidal uh, ideation so it's very costly for the payers um, to, um, to, um, yeah, to reimburse the, the, the healthcare that is needed for, for a patient here. And that's, um, uh, that will kind of allow us also to, um, yeah, commercialize those compounds that we invest large sums of money in now in a, uh, now at this point in time, later, once we have it approved, hopefully, uh, in, in a viable way. What a fascinating company. Florian Brandt is the CEO of Atai Life Therapy Sciences. Um, glad to have you on. Um, and uh, what an interesting company. We're going to have one number that tells us a little bit more about the company and the opportunity when the drill down continues right after this. The drill down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to the Drill Down podcast in oh so many ways in so many places, including with your smart speaker by asking your smart speaker to play the Drill Down podcast and we'll hear our most recent show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. Are you back with the Drill Down and the Drill Down Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot in this case, about a Thai life sciences. Um, and this is really about depression. So um, there have been a lot of studies uh, looking at the increase in mental health issues around COVID, Isaac. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, there's a thing called the COVID Project, and it did a study that it published in May of 2001 
um, about the increase in depression during the pandemic. Um, obviously, the pandemic continues, um, but maybe the lockdowns and other things uh, affiliated uh, are less so across the world. But just in the U.S., do you know how much depression rates increased since the onset of COVID-19? And Great this question. is a multiple. Um, how many times do you think they got worse? I w- uh, let's say 10 times worse. Uh, not that bad, but bad news. Okay. There was okay. a about a three times increase, about a 300% ah. increase since the wow. onset of COVID-19 pandemic in the depression rates for U.S. Mm-hmm. adults. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity for these companies that uh, seek to treat depression is so much greater. On the other hand, the ability to see a mental health professional and get it, you know, get, get, forget getting it through your insurance, just getting the appointment itself um, is so difficult. I've talked to a couple people in the last week um, researching this company before this interview, just talking about kind of what's going on with you and mental health, because my friends are crazy. And uh, it, it is a, no surprise there. I know. Well, takes one to know one. Um, well, listen, and you're uh, looking at one right here. Just getting to just getting to a shrink, finding a shrink, getting an appointment with a shrink yeah. is just so yeah. impossible. Let alone getting a good one, and also fi- just finding the right one. Not every sh- not not every shrink is going to be good for everyone, right? You have to find one that fits for you. They it's don't like that. some of them don't like that word shrink, and the ones who don't like the word shrink. Well, no, it's not. not it's no, this, we me. shouldn't be saying the word shrink. I'm glad you brought Why? that up. Why really do we need to go into the etymology of that? It's a colloquialism, I guess. All right, whatever. no, no, um, it's not proper. Case, we apologize for using that word. Uh, a mental health professional is what we should be saying. Yeah, right. And that's what we're talking about, mental health professionals. Um, certainly, it'd be great if we could have better solutions to these um, vexing problems of depression, schizophrenia, uh, and more. Um, and hey, if a Thai scientist can make show that it works, wouldn't that be a great thing? No, I think there's a huge market opportunity there. Because one thing that I've noticed you know, during the pandemic as well is people are more apt to talk about mental health issues now, which is mm. a good thing. You know, sure. the stigma about talking about mental health, your own mental health journey, that's been lessened, I feel, in general. Be- and how do you fit- feel about that? Partly in thanks to the pandemic. I feel very good. I feel very good. I didn't fall for it's that. It's a very big thing because a lot of people, uh, it's a hard thing to talk about. It's a um, personal, I, personal thing. I have found that if you ask a mental health professional, how do you feel about that? They completely take the bait, even though that's the way they respond every patient that they see. Uh, you've been listening to the Drill Down podcast, crazy as it might be. I'm Corey Johnson. Uh, you know what? Also, we apologize for using that word crazy. That's also a word we should not be using. All right. Uh, ben, uh, ben Wilson is our executive, our editor, extraordinaire. Um, totally. And sound. I'm the one trying to keep it on, on, keep us on the rails here. And the Drill Down is a production of the Business <laughs> Podcast Network. Um, what time is it? <laughs> <laughs>